up above me is a picture of my great-grandma. I called her Gigi. That's me, too. Aw, there it is, yeah. Uh, I called her Gigi, and she was like another mother to me. She uh, was in my life my whole life, but uh, at a young age, uh, I lived with her for many years. Me and my dad lived in the same house as her, and so we had a fantastic bond. When I was really little, uh, one of my first memories in all of life, actually, is that I would walk down to her room, and uh, I would I would say, Gigi, can we see the moon? And, and she would either open the window or on nice nights we would walk outside and look at the moon. It's one of my, my favorite memories and one of my youngest memories that I, that I have in all my life. Uh, as I got a little bit older, not much, uh, at the age of four, uh, we had missed church one Sunday. And so we were listening to the tape in those days. And, and we were listening to the tape of our pastor's sermon from the week before. And, and he got done speaking. And, and I said to my great-grandma, she was the only one there with me, I, I want to be a Christian. And, and she waited until my dad got home to work all of that out. But uh, but she was the one there with me uh, when I gave my life to Christ. And uh, as, as I got even a little bit older than that... Uh, for me as a kid, vacation meant Disneyland. I didn't know that there was anything else. And, and so uh, at a young age, we would go to Disneyland and my great grandma would go with us and and she would get a wheelchair because she was older. And looking at it now, she wasn't as old as she seemed then, but, uh, but she was older and so she would get a wheelchair and me and the coach would ride around on the wheelchair. And so at a young age, I didn't know that you ever had to walk at Disneyland. It, it's, it's taken it down just a small step for me, but I still love it. And so I remember that and into high school, my great grandma, uh, as I was a teenager, she she paid really for those teenage years. Uh, most people, when they need money, they go to uh, their dad, you know, or their mom or whoever it might be. I went to my great grandma, said, "Hey, I need to go to a movie tonight. Can I have some money?" And never, ever do I ever remember her saying no. Uh, as she even got older, this is just for fun to tell you, uh, she couldn't do very much and she still had the same money coming in. And so I just had her debit card. Uh, and I still, I still have that debit card sitting in, in my dresser actually, uh, just as a keepsake. It doesn't work anymore. Um, then, uh, after college, uh, I, I moved back in with my grandparents right when I started working with you guys. This was going on in, in my life and, so I lived there for about a year after college, and my great-grandma's health was getting worse and worse. She was about 91 years old when I moved back in there. And every single uh, night almost, at least three, four times a week, my great-grandma would have a heart attack, and, and they'd put her on hospice. And so my grandma became, uh, not my great-grandma, my grandma became like a, a heart attack superhero and and she would administer the medicine this is true and every single time this happened three four times a week i would kneel by my great grandma's bed and i would pray with her and say goodbye to her uh, we said goodbye three or four times a week and she kept living she was a stubborn old woman uh, she just kept surviving heart attack after heart attack but but i would sit there and i would talk to her about how much i loved her and 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 she was more calm about the situation than i ever was but i would pray with her every time it, it would happen and uh, she lived through that, and and she lived. Uh, and one of the things I'm most grateful for in all of my life uh, is that she she was able to meet Bryn. She lived into my days uh, of dating Bryn. She didn't live until our wedding. And then one day, uh, one morning, my dad called. I was woken up to a phone call, and I heard the words that for a long time we had kind of expected, but I I had dreaded since I was a little kid. I I remember having dreams 
waking up crying uh, because I, my great-grandma had died in my dreams. And my dad said, I remember the words pretty good, I was barely awake, but he said, she's gone. And he was holding it together pretty good, but, but he cracked on the second time, she's gone. And he was right, she was gone. Bryn, I called Bryn up, we were dating at the time, and, and so we drove down and, and we entered the house and, and they said, do you want to see your great-grandma? And, and I didn't, you, you never really want to see a dead body, right? Uh, it's a hard thing to do, but of course I said yes, and... And they walked me back there, and, and, and there was a body, but my dad's words were more accurate than he probably intended them to be. She, she was gone. She wasn't there anymore. And the question, I think, is so pertinent every time we're faced with death and, and we think about death is, is, where are they? Now, the simple answer for my great-grandma is that she was in heaven. I mean, that's, that's a simple answer, right? I mean, my great-grandma, from, from a very young age recognized that she was a sinner. She was very scared of hell. She, she would have told you that. And a pastor preached a sermon and she didn't want to go to hell. And so she, instead of hell, said, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. She believed the words that were in the Bible that taught her that she needed to recognize she was a sinner. And out of that, she needed to recognize her need for a Savior. And she needed to accept the gift that a man named Jesus gave through dying on a cross for her sins. And she accepted that gift and she lived her entire life for God. And so my great-grandma accepted this. And the Bible tells us quite clearly that if we believe that, if we accept the gospel of Jesus it is, as it is written in, in the Bible and when we believe it and we give our lives to Christ, then when we pass away, we go to heaven. And so the simple answer for where my Gigi was when she died on January 5th of 2008 was, was heaven. I mean, she went to be in heaven. But the greater question is, I think, what is heaven like? I mean, I, I loved my great-grandma tremendously. And then she was in a different place. And I think me and my family, we can all attest that we, we pondered this thought. What is it like where she is now. I mean, Paul tells us a, a little bit in 1 Corinthians 5. He's writing to a group of believers and he's talking about death and he uses the word tent for a body. And he says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. And so Paul makes pretty clear that when we die, we get to go to a, a heavenly realm, and we get these new bodies, and we are somewhere else. But in that verse, anyway, he doesn't really explain what that is like. But you see, when people leave us, we are oftentimes curious about the places that they go, right? I recently, uh, in the last several years, I guess, have had a sister and a cousin both move to Atlanta. And, it, and it's interesting to me, as I was pondering this, this heaven and, and my great-grandma and where she is now, I've asked a ton of questions, specifically to my cousin, about what Atlanta is like. I've said, hey, Jared, what's the food like there? Hey, is everybody a Republican? Hey, are they really as friendly as they say? Hey, does everybody smoke cigarettes? Hey, do you recycle? Do they know what that is down there? All these, and that's a no, by the way, they don't. Um, 
If anybody's listening online from the South, recycle something. Uh, and so uh, I've asked all these questions. Why have I asked all these questions? Because I'm curious about the place that my loved ones have gone. Over the next six weeks, we're going to study heaven. And I think it's really important for us to think about this. Most of us know somebody in our lives that we loved that has either gone to heaven or at least we believe has gone to heaven. And so in our minds, I think it's important for us, I think it's good for us to be curious about the place in which they live. Don't you? Don't you think that's a good thing? And so over the next six weeks, we'll, six weeks, we'll answer questions like, where is heaven? Isn't that kind of an interesting question? I mean, they have telescopes that can go thousands of miles into space and nobody's seen heaven. So where is heaven? We'll answer questions like, how do you get to heaven? That's an important one. We'll answer questions like, what do you do in heaven when you get there? We'll answer questions like, do dogs go to heaven? Everybody wants to know that one. There's a whole book on that one. Uh, and, And so we will answer these questions about what heaven is like, what we do in heaven. And my hope is, that at least on an emotional level, you'll be able to say, wow, I want to know because I think I know somebody there. I think I know somebody that that lives there now, and and I kind of want to know more about what it's like. But there's a problem with that. If that is our only reason for desiring to know more about heaven, or maybe just our simple curiosity, then it's going to fade. You see, when Jared, my cousin, and, and Danielle, my sister, moved to Atlanta, at first I wanted to know a lot about it, right? Like, oh, what's this like? What's this like? What's this like? And then eventually, you just... Stop caring. I mean, they're gone. They're somewhere else, whatever. And it slowly fades. You slowly do not care anymore. The same is true with the topic of heaven. I mean, when my great-grandma died, every song about heaven that that we'd sing in church made me cry. And I'd think about what heaven was like. And you sing, I can only imagine. And and you're weeping, you know, you've been there, right? And and so at first it was like, I want to know about heaven. And I'm thinking about heaven and what's it like and, and what's she experiencing right now. But here I am. Four years later, and the truth is, I don't ask those questions nearly as often anymore. My great-grandma's passed away. I trust that she's in heaven. I'm happy about that. But I think less about the details. And so if you and I are, are to go through this next six weeks, and it's simply because we have a curiosity, or we want to know what it's like for somebody that we know that has gone to be there, then eventually that's going to fade. I don't think it's selfish. I just think it's part of human nature. That that curiosity will fade as we get further away from the death of somebody that we love. And, and so today, this is my hope. My hope today is not to begin to define heaven. Most of the time when I start a series, I begin with definitions. If you've been around for a long time, then you know that the first Sunday in, in a series is about defining terms. And I try to do that in, in a semi-creative way so that you're not bored. But, but we all need to be on the same page. But this whole series is about defining heaven, what it is, where it is, who gets there, and all of that stuff. And so this morning, instead of defining the word heaven for you, which we'll do over six weeks, instead of that, today, what I want for us is to help us understand why it is important to study the topic of heaven. I mean, we're not there, you know? I mean, we're we're not. This is earth, and we're not in heaven yet. And someday, if we're Christians, we'll get there, and then we'll figure it out. But why right now? While we're living here and we're coming to church, is it important for you and I to study heaven? 
I think the greatest answer comes to us in Matthew 19. We're going to look at verses 16 through 30 today. But I, I want to just go verse by verse and, and examine this story because I think that this story really teaches us about why heaven is important. So, Matthew 19:16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, this is the story that we know as the rich young ruler. And it's also recorded in Mark 10 and in the book of Luke as well, Luke 18, I believe. And in those books, they give us other details that we don't see in the book of Matthew. And so when it says here in verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus, it doesn't tell us what Mark and Luke tells us. And that is that the man ran up to Jesus and the man fell at, his, uh, fell at the feet of Jesus. It's weird because this man seems desperate for some reason. He seems desperate to know how he can get eternal life. Now what's really interesting about that to me is is that Jewish people were not very concerned with the topic of eternal life. They're still not very concerned with the topic uh, of eternal life. In fact, if you try to to research how a Jewish person pre-Christ, a non-Christian Jew, believes or believed that they can get into heaven or get eternal life, whatever that might mean, it's really hard to find a dogmatic answer. It's really hard to nail down a single answer for how a Jewish person believes they can get eternal life. But this young man seems concerned with something that his people were not that concerned with. And it's interesting also because usually they would have said like, you know, Believe in God, be a Jew, and and live some kind of good life. Follow the commands for the most part. But he doesn't seem satisfied with the answer that is floating around him at the time. And so we see this guy, this, this man, who is a rich young ruler. And he seems absolutely desperate to find out how he can obtain eternal life, which is contrary to, to the culture in which he lives. Now making this even more staggering to me, is who this guy is. It says here that he's a man, but it also we see in the other stories and later in, in the book of Matthew that, that he wasn't just a man. This was a, a rich, young ruler. I just, just think about those three words. I mean, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. This guy's awesome. I mean, I've read the story a lot of times in my life, but I've never, until until I was studying for this sermon, thought, well, this guy, I just wish I was a little bit more like this guy. I mean, I'm still pretty young, but I'm not rich and I'm not a ruler. So I got one for three going for me. This guy is a rich, young young ruler. I mean, when he walks in the room, men are hiding their daughters, right? I mean, I bet he's good looking, too. I'm just, I'm sure that he's, you know the type, right? I mean, this guy is a good looking, rich, young ruler. That's who he is. The Bible leaves out the good looking part, but I'm, I'm certain of it. And so this guy has everything going for him. I mean, this is the guy that everybody wants to be like. I mean, he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. And yet he's running up to Jesus and he's falling at Jesus' feet And he's wondering how to obtain eternal life, something that the Jewish people weren't very concerned with. I don't know this. The Bible doesn't tell us this anywhere. But I'm pretty convinced something has happened in this guy's life. For some reason, he's not satisfied with the life that he has even though he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. He's he's just not satisfied with that. And he, he seems to be thinking 
There's got to be something more. I mean, there has to be something beyond this life that I'm living. And it seems, based on his running to Jesus, that he's heard that Jesus has the answer to what that more is. Jesus comes into this guy's town and this guy must hear, Jesus is here and he must already be wrestling with what else there is, how he can get eternal life and he must not be satisfied with what he's being told by the religious leaders and, and his friends and his family. And so as soon as Jesus gets there, he's like, I have to go see that guy and he just runs to Jesus and he falls at his feet. And he asks, how can I get eternal life? I think that, that maybe... Maybe something has taken place in this guy's life that has really made him ask that question. I think everybody who hasn't come to Jesus has some type of knowledge that something is missing apart from Jesus. Even if they don't go to Jesus like this guy did, I think every person that doesn't know Jesus goes, ah, something is missing from my life. I think that guy probably has a little bit of that going on, but I think it's something further. I think somebody in this guy's life has died. Or I think this guy almost got hit by a chariot going down the street. I mean, I think that this guy is facing death somehow. I think the idea and the concept of death has somehow surfaced in this guy's life. And now he's wondering how he can get eternal life. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but but that's kind of the case for us, isn't it? I mean, you think about when somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, all of a sudden, earth, It's not nearly as important for understanding purposes as what happens after we die, right? When when your loved one dies, same idea, right? You you go, wow, well, earth is okay, but but I want to know what happens next. Or or when you, you know, you've got it like you're going down the road and somebody almost hits you. I'm on the freeway a lot and you go, whoa, and then you're like, oh, man, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. It's not exactly in that order always, but you get the idea, right? And, And I think that's the case for this rich young ruler. I mean, he has everything going for him from a worldly standpoint, but I think something is going on that's making him question what comes after this life. I want it. And he hears Jesus has come into town and he just starts running and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He says, Jesus, what do I have to do to have life after this life? What do I have to do to have more than I already have because what I have is just not satisfying me. And I'm scared for what the future might bring. So he falls at Jesus' feet and he asks this question. We pick it up. uh, And Jesus says this, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. This is a problematic verse. If Jesus hadn't said this, I wouldn't have liked it at all. In fact, if, if, if one of you said this to me, this very thing, I would have said you were wrong. But Jesus said it, and so what, what is Jesus saying? I mean, because we believe that Jesus is part of God, right? We believe in the Trinity, and, and we believe that Jesus is part of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three forms that make one God. And we believe Jesus is part of that, and the rest of the New Testament teaches that Jesus is part of that. It is part of what we believe as Christians. And Jesus says, well, only God is good. I mean, if I'm there, I'm like, Jesus, you are God. You are. You are good because you are God. And then he says this other weird thing that is just so unlike what we think. He says, if you want life, keep the commandments. That's wrong. 
Jesus, that's not how we get. We get eternal life by believing in you. You're God, and we believe in you and what you did on the cross. Keep the, that's wrong. You sound like a Catholic. Uh, right? I mean, you, you, that's like, Jesus, come on. You can't say that. But Jesus is not teaching theology here, and that's the trick to understanding this. I've read this a lot of times through the years, and it's always kind of bothered me, but I've never taken time to stop and go, what is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is he's setting this rich young ruler up to teach him a lesson. This is not a theology lesson. If you opened up your Bible and you said, okay, I'm going to figure out how I can get eternal life, and you accidentally opened up to Matthew 19, 17, you shouldn't take that as theology. This is not a theology lesson. Jesus is setting this guy up for the real way that you get eternal life. But he's helping this guy, and you'll see this in a second, he is helping this guy become more introspective and recognize his need for Jesus, the real way that you get eternal life. And so we continue to look at this story, and in verse 18 it says, the guy says, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy responds, this is really interesting, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Now Jesus continues to say something that is just like, no. I mean, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, like in Romans 3.28, it says that we can't get salvation apart from observing the law. That's a quote from Romans 3.28. Apart from observing the law, there is no salvation. And then if you were to look at Ephesians 2.9, talking about salvation and eternal life, uh, it says not by works. It, it cannot be received by works. It just can't happen. But I think you need to understand the Ten Commandments to understand what Jesus is saying. here. There's ten of them, first of all. That's important. But the first four, it's called the first table in the Ten Commandments. But then there's a second table of the Ten Commandments. It's the last six commandments in what we know as the Ten Commandments. The last six are the six that Jesus lists. He changes the wording of some of them, but the principles are still the same. And so he changes a couple of them, but he says, here, look, follow these last six verses, commandments in the Ten Commandments. Now, these six commandments are all based on the way that we treat people. The second table in the Ten Commandments, maybe you've never heard it said that way, is all about the way you and I interact with each other. God wrote those six commandments so the Jewish people would know how they need to treat one another. They're by far easier than the first four commandments to recognize when you mess up. I mean, I know when I steal. I know when I lie. I know when I murder. I don't. But I know, I, I would know when I murder, right? And, and, and I, I would know if I committed adultery. I definitely said that one correctly, right? And, and I, you know these things, right? It's the way that we interact with each other. This is the second table of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus chooses to list these six commandments for this guy. Now, it's really interesting because he leaves out the first four of the commandments. And this guy is able to say, and I think he was being honest, at least with himself, when he says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. He says that in the book of Mark. Now, it's interesting because when he says, since I was a boy, he's probably not talking about the time when he was born. He probably isn't saying, I've been perfect my entire life. Uh, when Jewish young boys uh, go through their bar mitzvah, which actually means son of the commandment, that is the time when they say, I commit to following the commandments of God. And so this rich young ruler probably isn't saying, I've been perfect since I was a 
baby. He's probably saying, I followed those commands, the ones that you just listed, Jesus, since the time I was 13 years old and I went through my bar mitzvah and I said that I would follow those commands. Now, it's really easy to go, well, this guy's either dumb or he's naive because there's no way he's followed all of these things. But when you read the six commands that Jesus has given, it's possible that this guy has not broken any of those commands. And so Jesus says, look, follow these six commands. And the guy says, well, I have. It's another setup. And then he says, what else must I do? And here is the key verse in the whole thing. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You go, well, do we have to sell everything to get eternal life? That's not the point. Jesus is summarizing the first four commandments of the Old Testament, I believe, which say this, you don't take the Lord's name in vain, you don't have any other gods, you don't make other gods, and you keep the Sabbath holy because that's God's day. You see, the first four commandments summarize what I believe is summed up in in Deuteronomy 6.4 where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Jesus repeats that. Jesus is saying, look, not, hey, go sell everything. He's saying, if you want eternal life, then you give your entire life to God. See, this isn't about us selling everything we own. That is not the way to heaven. Jesus is summarizing what is, needs to be true in the life of every person who will obtain eternal life, and that is that they must give their entire lives to God. We often talk about believing in Jesus, and that is true, but the New Testament is pretty clear That when we believe in Jesus, we must give Jesus our lives. We must give Him everything. And then we get to go to heaven someday. You see, Jesus hits this guy where he's at. I mean, He looked at this guy and it says in the book of Luke that He loved this guy. He isn't just trying to make eternal life hard for Him. It's not like He's like, I'll show this guy. He's never going to get eternal life. That's not the heart here. Jesus loves this guy when He looks at him. But he cannot sugarcoat what it takes to obtain eternal life. He says, if you want eternal life, then you must give your entire life to God. And the New Testament says that that Jesus came to earth, God in human form, and he died on a cross. He died there to save us from our sins, and we must believe that he did that. That's part of it. But it also tells us that we must place our faith in him when it says that, It makes clear in the rest of the New Testament that it isn't just about some mental belief. It's about us saying, look, Jesus, you gave your life for me. Now I give my life to you. You can have it all because I realize that you are the only one who can save me. When Jesus says, go sell everything, what he's saying is if you want to be somebody who has obtained eternal life, then you give all of your life to God through me. The next verse has been called one of the saddest In all of the Bible, verse 22, when the man heard this, he went away sad because he had such great wealth. He just turns around and walks the other way. He thinks, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too rich. Got too much going for me. There's too many people who look up to me. I just cannot give all of my money away. He really fails to follow the parables that Jesus gives in Matthew 13 when he describes how we can get into the kingdom of God, eternal life. 
Matthew 13, 44 through 46, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. In Luke 9.23, Jesus describes it in much more straightforward terms. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus says, look, you, you go sell everything. You give your entire life to me and you can have eternal life. And the guy says, it's not worth it. It's a pretty sad deal, isn't it? And I think that the hidden message that we need to see today lies right there in in that middle part of verse 21. You will have treasure in heaven. You see, I think what this guy heard is go sell everything and then you get nothing. But what Jesus actually said is go sell everything and then you will get a treasure somewhere else. And I think that this guy must not have understood heaven very well. And he must not have understood that the treasure in heaven will be better than the treasure on earth. Because he said, look, I can't give this up for that. I mean, I can't give what I have right now for what you're offering. That's just not acceptable for me. And he turned around and he walked away from eternal life. But if he would have paid attention, and I believe if he would have studied the topic of heaven, then what he would have said is, wow. I mean, I just have to sell a few horses and a little bit of uh, property and, and some sheep and you'll give me treasure in heaven? You see, I don't think this guy understood the greatness of heaven and so the cost to get that heaven was far too high for him. I think this is the thing. I think the reason that, that the study of heaven is important is because the Bible has demanded that you give your entire life in order to get heaven. And if you don't think very much of heaven, then you're not going to give up the things that you have on this earth. I tried to get you this video clip. I'm going to have to try to explain it to you, but uh, we, we couldn't get it to, to download. Uh, but but uh, all dogs go to heaven, one and two. There's scenes in both of those movies. Where the main character, he dies, gets to heaven, and he gets there. And he starts walking around and he's talking to an angel dog. And the angel dog's showing him around and he's going, going look how great this is. The, the dog is like, this is boring. I need some surprises. That's the song they sing. I, I need some surprises. I need some excitement. I don't want to float around on this cloud all day playing a harp because that doesn't sound very fun. And what he does, if you remember the movie, is he sneaks the clock of his life, puts it behind his back, and he winds it back up because he wants to get back to earth from heaven because it's just not that fun. I was sitting in a coffee shop working on my sermon, actually. And I just heard a guy say on the phone, he said, Well, I'm sitting here having coffee and reading the newspaper, so I'm in heaven. I'm telling you, I mean, that sounds fun, but I'm not trading my entire life for a cup of coffee and a sports page. It's just not happening. And when you think of heaven, admit it. You think of a halo, and you think of a harp, and you think of a cloud, and it is really hard to go, I'm going to trade my nice house and my car, and I'm going to trade the music I listen to, and I'm going to trade my girlfriend, and I'm going to trade everything. I'm just going to be willing to give all of that to God. For a halo and a harp and a cloud. Isn't that pretty difficult? 
And I think it's what separates this rich young ruler from the disciples. You see, this guy's a rich young ruler, and he looks and goes, look how much I have to give up. I can't give all of that. And in the history of Christianity, we've seen this very same thing. When you study Christianity and its history, most of the time it has been most widely accepted by the poor and disenfranchised. Maybe because you live in America today and we're putting up these huge giant churches and and we're spending tons of money on our looks and things like that within the church, you might think differently. But if you study the history of Christianity, it is a poor man's religion. And I think the reason lies in what we see here. For a rich young ruler, for a guy that has everything going for him, popularity and wealth and everything, it's not a very good trade for a halo and a cloud and a harp. But for a guy living on the streets that has absolutely nothing, no family, struggling with alcoholism, they look at a harp and a cloud and a halo and they think that sounds like a pretty good trade to me. And we see this within the disciples. If you know Jesus' disciples, these were, these were the guys that people didn't like that much. I mean, some of them were fishermen and they made an okay living, but they were blue collar. They weren't, they weren't rich. They probably smelled bad all the time. And we have a tax collector and everybody hated the tax collectors. And so we have one of those in there. And we got people that are, are trying to fight the Roman government and they almost would have been criminals. And Jesus calls all these guys to himself. He says, follow me, leave everything behind. And guess what? They do. I think it's because they recognize that what Jesus might offer would be better than the life that they lived where they weren't that socially accepted and and people weren't that kind to them and they weren't that rich. And Peter, one of those guys who I think wasn't that socially accepted because of how much he said, look what he picks up on in this. He says this, Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? See what Peter has already been thinking about? He's like, I left a smelly fishing boat. It was an okay life, but it wasn't that great. And I left it to come with you, Jesus, because I believe that your kingdom will be better. And now you're telling this rich guy, you're saying, hey, rich guy, you need to leave everything. And I'm saying, I have left everything. So if it was better for him to leave everything, then I know it was better for me to leave everything. And so, Jesus, what do I get? And sometimes I think, in our modern day Christianity, that is a question that we think is inherently bad. I think for some reason we think that we can't say to God, what's in this for me in the long run? I mean, how great is it going to be for me if I go sacrifice in this way for you? But when you read the New Testament, you consistently see that the disciples would come up to Jesus, say, hey, Jesus, what are we going to do? Hey, Jesus, am I going to have a lot of power when we get into your kingdom? Hey, Jesus, what do we get when we get into your kingdom? They were intensely focused on what they would receive. And what you find is that Jesus never responds in an angry way to them when they ask these types of questions. Wouldn't you expect it? I mean, if somebody said to you, man, I'm, I'm going to go right now and I'm going to feed, feed the poor because I, I want God to do something great for me when I get to heaven, you'd go, come on, you can't say that, just go sacrifice. But, but that's kind of the question that, that Peter's asking. I mean, Jesus, I don't see my family as much. And we're homeless now. And a lot of people don't like me because I'm living for you. And so what will we get? And notice Jesus' response. 
says to them, I, Truly I tell you with the renewal of all things. And that is a term that I think refers to heaven, something we'll cover in the next few weeks. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for My sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus says, if you give it all up for me, if you give me your life, if you accept me as your Savior and say, I will live for you, then you will get so much more than you gave up. Uh, that's just a great beginning place for us on the topic of heaven, right? I mean, the top, it's just better than what you have right now. How about that? We can just start there and, and we'll start to define it now. Heaven is a hundredfold what you have right now. It's more than that, and we'll talk about it, but it's at least that. And Jesus looks at these guys, and he says, if you give me your life, it will be worth it. He says, it will be worth it. You will get so much more than you have given up. I think what he said just a a few verses before is really interesting. Verses 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that all things are possible with God. But what Jesus is saying here is it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven. Why? Because a rich person has more to give up for the glory and sake of God. You go, yeah, that's true. But here's, here's the bad news for you. You are the rich person. You are here and you live in this country... You are the rich people. And Jesus is saying it is very hard for you to get into heaven. Why? Because you have so much to give up. He says it's possible with God, but he's making a point. It's hard for the rich to get into heaven because they have so much to give up. And here's my hope. Here's my hope as we, as we study over the next five weeks. My hope is that we will paint such a great picture of heaven And hopefully you will dive into it on your own apart from Sundays, but we will just start to grasp what heaven looks like. And for some of you in this room right now, for the first time you'll say, wow, I really want heaven. And so Jesus, I will give my life to you believing that you died for my sins and I will accept that gift and I will just, I will give myself to you. Some of you, I think, just you need to make sure that you're going to heaven. And the only way to do that, according to Jesus, is to give your life to Him. And so my hope is, as we go through these five weeks, some of you will go, Wow, I want to go there. And so I will give up my life for that. Others of you have given your lives to Jesus, right? I mean, you've become Christians and you're like, I'm going to heaven someday. But my hope is, as we study heaven together, it's not simply that our curiosity will be satisfied. It's not that we'll go, oh, that new bestseller that was written about heaven was wrong or right. I mean, I couldn't care less about that. But instead, my hope is this. As we see how great and wonderful and awesome heaven is, you will say, man, I want to give Jesus more of my life because I want to be rewarded there and not here. I want my treasure, as Jesus says it, to be in heaven and not here because I understand now that what I have there is far better than what I can ever have here. I'll just close by reading the words of Jesus because he says exactly that. He says in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. My hope for the next several weeks is that we will become a people who desperately want to store treasure in heaven because we know that that place is far better than this place. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask God that that this study would glorify you, God, that we would... God, that, that, that we wouldn't make it about us and, and just wanting more knowledge so that we have something greater to look forward to, God. But, but instead, God, I pray that, that we would make it about you. And as, as we study heaven, I would ask, Lord, that, that we would just become so excited to be there someday, Lord, that it would cause us to live more fully for you while we're here on this earth, God. Lord, I'm sorry for for how we sometimes dismiss your words about what it means to be your follower. And I'm, I'm sorry, God, that, that sometimes we just make it about a, a simple prayer or we make it about some type of mental belief and, and, and we just ignore, God, the fact that you have told us that, that you want our entire lives. And, and I pray that would change, God, this morning and as we move forward, Lord. I, I just pray... That, that you would change that within us, God. And for those of us who do believe, I pray that we would give more of ourselves to you, God, and just be completely devoted to you, God. Father, as we'll see in the next few weeks, you, you tell us that, that you are preparing this wonderful place for us and that you offer us this amazing this amazing place called heaven, God. And I pray that, that we would just be excited about you because you have given us that, Lord. I mean, I pray that, God, we would, we would just learn to love you more because, because we see that you want to give us something just so great and so wonderful and so awesome. Lord, I, I thank you that we have the ability to obtain eternal life through you. And I pray that every person in this room would grasp a hold of that And God, I pray that every person in this room would live that out in their daily lives. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.